9 through 19. And it's important that we recall um, in this that Jesus is now in the temple. He's teaching in the temple. Remember, he'd been traveling to Jerusalem, um, teaching his disciples what it means to be a disciple, um, doing miracles, healing, uh, raising the dead. And now he is in the temple teaching the, the triumphal entry, um, has uh, was... A couple a couple weeks ago, we studied that. And then he comes in the temple, starts teaching in Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life. He's only going to be, um, depending on your chronology, Luke chapter 29 through 19 probably happens on Wednesday. He's going to be crucified on Friday. So he's uh, his time on this earth is just is drawing to an end. And he is now teaching and preaching the gospel. Remember, there's an active plot to destroy him. The goal is uh, the goal all along has been we need to find a way to kill Jesus or we need to find a way to eliminate Jesus. One of the ways that I believe that the religious leaders are seeking to eliminate Christ is by discrediting him. That's their that's one attempt. And they're doing that through a series of questions. We saw last week they asked a question. Remember, he comes in and he cleanses the temple and he throws out all of the people who are merchandising. And then they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And they think they've got him in a trap. They think by asking him this question, if he says, oh, well, I do this by the authority of God, everybody will say, you're a blasphemer. How dare you say such a thing? And if, they, if he says, by my own authority, then, of course, they would say, well, you don't have that, that authority to do something like that. So they think they've got him in a trap, but, but instead Jesus um, turns the tables on them and they become the ones who are trapped. So we're going to see, a, in the next few weeks, we're going to see a number of questions that the, that the religious leaders are going to ask him in an attempt to discredit him, and by discrediting him, they can eliminate him. What's going to happen is none of those things are going to work, and so they go to plan B, and that is kill him, which is really God's plan A. So they end up doing, uh, they end up crucifying Christ, delivering him over to Rome to be crucified, and they put the Son of God to death. So that's just kind of the setting. That's where we're at. Jesus knows this. He's still teaching in the temple, um, knowing that their intent is to murder him. That's kind of the general setting. Here's where we're going to go today. This is a very um, important parable. We're going to learn a bit about, Jesus is going to uh, tell a parable. It is a significant parable. It is a parable that addresses salvation history. That is, it is a parable that addresses God's working of salvation in his people from the formation of Israel all the way until the present day. And so from the from Israel's inception to the ministry and crucifixion of Christ, Jesus is going to summarize all of that into this very, very brief parable. So that's uh, just a little bit of an idea of where we're going to go. I think the need for this parable, the need for this particular passage of text will be a blessing if we um, diligently um, commit ourselves to to the understanding of what Jesus is teaching. Some of the great truths that we are going to learn or one of the, some of the important things that I hope when we walk out of here we will uh, be able to take with us is number one, the incredible long-suffering of God. The amazing patience of God dealing with us. We're going to see God's incredible patience in dealing with his people. In fact, this is the one thing that I believe that is really surprising about this particular parable is, the, is God's long-suffering and how many of us can be thankful that God is patient and long-suffering with us. 
So that's one of the great things. The other thing is that we're going to see Jesus as the culmination of God's God's plan of salvation. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel to speak to them about the word of God. They, They rejected all of those prophets. Jesus comes as not only a prophet, but the culmination of prophets, the son of God, who is the culmination of God's plan of redemption or God's culmination of God's salvation plan. So we're going to see Jesus as that and then Ultimately, we will also learn that God's plan cannot be derailed, not by wicked men, not by the plots of men, not by any demon in hell, not by anything. God's plan will stand and it will go forth. And I would suggest you get on board. That's where we're going to go. That's just kind of a quick introduction. So let's go ahead and let's uh, follow along with me as we read God's word in uh, Luke chapter 20. Listen to the word of the Lord. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent a third This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to another to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Well, let's begin with this parable. And we, it should be fairly obvious to, to most of us that this, is a, that this parable is an allegory. That is, that there is a historical correspondence to the various characters in the in the parable, and not all of Jesus' parables are allegories, but there are a few, and we do want to interpret this as accurately as possible. So let me just kind of go through um, and identify the, the key players and uh, help you understand at least where I'm going to go with this, because there's at least one up here that uh, some of you may disagree with me on, and that's okay. So in the allegory, the landowner represents God. I don't think anybody's going to have a huge question with that. The tenants... Uh, are the are Israel's leadership, mostly Israel's leadership. I would go also uh, a little bit also to the people, but mostly Israel's leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who are seeking to put Jesus to death are the tenants. The servants that, God's, that, that the landowner sends would um, be the prophets. The son, obviously, is Jesus. And then the vineyard. Probably the majority of Bible students are going to say that the vineyard is um, Israel. 
And I'm going to be in a very, very small minority to um, say that's only, I don't think that's complete. I think that the vineyard represents God's promises and blessings, of which Israel is one of those promises and blessings. And the reason I say that is because when we get, well, the main reason, there's a number of reasons, but I won't bore you with all of those reasons. The main reason is when we get to the end, God says, I'm going to give the vineyard to others. Well, he doesn't give Israel to others. But the responsibility of God's promises of his covenant blessings um, do go to others. So that's, that's my main reason why I'm not, I, I kind of part company from the majority of um, Bible students and would say it's probably not Israel. I think it's God's promises and blessings of which Israel was one of those promises and blessings. Okay, are you with me? All right. We're not nodding off yet. We're kind of awake still. All right. So here we go. Here's the parable. The parable speaks of a man who plants a vineyard and leases it out to tenant farmers. This would have been a very, very familiar image to the listeners as Jesus is teaching in the temple. This was not an unheard of thing. Um, So a very familiar picture. We need to recognize that the tenant farmers, these farmers, they are not the owners of the vineyard. This is important for us to recognize that the farmers are not the owners, but rather they reap the benefits of their stewardship. God is the owner. The owner is the owner. He simply leases out what he possesses to others that they might bear fruit. And he's going to receive a portion of that fruit. And I think that's important also to realize that fruit is expected. In other words, the, vi- the owner of the vineyard leases this out to tenant farmers for the purpose of producing fruit. He gives responsibilities to these individuals so that with the expectation that fruit will come about. Again, a really crucial point, as we, um, especially when we get to an application portion of this. Fruit is expected by the landowner. All right, so the allegory here is that God has a vineyard. He has given covenant promises to his people. One of those covenant promises is the blessing of the land of Israel, but he has other covenant promises. I expect you to be good stewards of it. I expect you to produce fruit from the thing that I am giving you. You are stewards. You are responsible for, um, for faithful stewardship over what I have given you. And so... A man planted a vineyard. He led it out to tenants. He went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, um, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit. So now the time of harvest comes. A sufficient amount of time is implied by this, perhaps three to five years. In other words, he didn't expect, you know, after six weeks, where's the fruit? A sufficient amount of time has come. Where is the fruit from my field? And I sent a servant to go and receive fruit from the field. In in other words, there would have been a covenant between the owner and the tenant farmers. The owner would have said, the land is yours. Do with it as you want. I'm, I'm leasing it to you. Here's what I expect in return. I expect fruitfulness. I expect that you will treat the, 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 the privilege of, of this land, you will treat it well, and you will provide with, to me some of the fruit of the land. That's the contract. That's the covenant. So in this parable, the owner has upheld his terms, and now he's holding the farmers, the tenant farmers, in, um, accountable to what they were supposed to do. So here's what happens. Normally what's going to happen is a servant's going to come um, and say, hey, it's harvest time. 
The owner gets a portion of the field. Where's the fruit? And they would say, well, here it is. But instead, what the tenant farmers do in this particular parable is they beat the servant up and throw him out and say, get out of here, you bum. Go back and tell that master of yours, you get nothing. So the owner says, well, I'm going to send a second one, another prophet. And I'm going to say, where is the fruit that is due me? What do they do? They beat him up, mistreat him, and throw him out. A third one comes along. And they mistreat him and abuse him and throw him out of the vineyard. We should note, the problem here is not the lack of production of fruit. The problem here is not that they fail to produce fruit. Rather, the, the problem or the sin or the issue here is that they despise those who come in the name of the owner. They despise the owner and they despise all of those who come in the name of the owner. We hate the owner of this field. And we will have nothing to do with him. And whoever he sends in his name, all those who represent him, we despise them as well and we will mistreat them. So the problem is, is that they despise the owner. In fact, I think one of the problems is also that they begin to think that the land is theirs. They give nothing back and they treat the servants as trespassers. So, as I said earlier, the servants portray the prophets that God sent periodically throughout Israel's history. God raised up a people. He called them to be fruitful. He called them to glorify him on the earth. He called them to represent his interest on the earth, to be a blessing to the nations. And when time came, says, where is the fruit of what I have called you to do? He sent... um, He sent his prophets, where's the fruit? And instead of saying, wow, you represent the owner, we we should listen to what you have to say. They beat them and killed them and threw them out um, out of their presence. So they give nothing back. So the servants portray God's prophets who he sent periodically throughout Israel's history. We find probably the best example of this in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 through 29. Listen to what Isaiah or what Jeremiah says um, about this. this. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. So you, Jeremiah, shall speak these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Day after day after day, year after year, I sent my servants and they did not listen to them. And you, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, are going to go and they will not listen to you as well. Truth has perished. They have abandoned truth, mainly because God is the source of truth. And once you abandon God, who know what direction you can go is just only up to the imagination of men, but they have denied God. They have no 
fear of God. They have no fear of his word. And so they abuse those who come in the name of the Lord. And we see this in Jeremiah, but we see it going on throughout the history of Israel. Jesus also said, you know, you build the tomb and you chastise the religious leaders. You build the tomb of the prophets, but your fathers are the ones who killed the prophets. You act like you, re- like you respect the prophets, but you would have done the same. You would have killed the prophets. In fact, they're going to kill the very Son of God. So, this is what's going on. But I want to take note of the patience of the landowner. And I think this is one of those little hooks that's in this parable because... As I said at the beginning, this parable was fairly familiar. The idea of a landowner leasing out his, his land to tenant farmers was, was a pretty common uh, event in that day. It's common in our day. We still see that going on today all over the world. Here's what's unusual. Here's the thing that probably would have gotten the attention of the hearers, and that is the patience of the landowner because most people would have said the first servant who comes and gets beaten up Oh, well, that's it. We just come in, guns ablazing, and just take them out and I'll start all over again. But here, one of the hooks or one of the things that catches the attention of the, of the crowd that Jesus is teaching is the patience, the unheard of patience of the landowner. Vengeance should have occurred immediately. And folks, I want to make known to you that we have an abundant an abundantly patient, long-suffering God. But let me also put this to you. The kindness of God should lead us to repentance, as Paul says. So God is abundantly patient, abundantly merciful. And I think every single person in here can probably say, oh my goodness, God, when I mocked him, when I hated him, when I despised him, continued to send the gospel my way. On what basis would God continue to pursue after a person like me? After I rejected him, not once, twice or three times or four times, but persistently rejected him and he consistently and persistently sent the gospel my way. What a merciful and gracious God. If you are here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand this, that you are here today and you are hearing the gospel. Once again, God is sending another gospel message your way and I would pray that today it would penetrate your heart by God's spirit and you would call upon the name of the Lord and you would be saved it is no accident that you are here today it is you are not here simply because well my mom made me go or my husband made me go or my wife made me go or I felt obligated or whatever God drew you here to hear the gospel and in his long-suffering patience, here you are. And I would implore you, if you are convicted at all, by the, it is by the Holy Spirit to call upon his name and probably anybody in this church would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. But certainly after church, my wife and I will spend as much time as you need talking about the gospel and what it means to live that life. God is faithfully persistent and patient. And then in the parable we see that God, the owner of the vineyard says, well, what shall I do? I know I'll send my son. They will, perhaps they'll respect him. This is a very interesting term here. 
says, perhaps they will respect him. This idea of respect really has carries the idea of the shame that a person should experience when faced with the overabundant kindness of another. In other words, I've acted treacherously in all of these different ways, and then somebody's, and out of somebody's kindness, all of a sudden I'm going, oh my goodness, what a jerk I am. And the shame that I feel is like, well, I should, I should respond. Man, I'm just a total idiot. That's the idea of respect. Not it, it is understanding or recognizing the nobility of the landowner and recognizing how righteous and how beautiful and how wonderful and how patient he is feeling shame that you have mistreated his kindness. That's the, the general idea behind this. They, the idea is that they would see the nobility of the owner and sense shame in their actions. A great uh, a great example of this is uh, back in the in the 80s, and I forgot his his full name, um, but he the the king of Jordan, um, Hussein Al Talib, I think, and I could totally be butchering that. Was made aware through one of his uh, confidants that on a, at, at that particular time, when the confidant came to him, says there is a group of trusted military leaders who are right now planning to overthrow your government and to kill you. What should we do? And of course, the suggestion was, well, you got the whole army. There's a few generals and a few pretty high-ranking military officials, but you have the full weight of the Jordanian military. You can just go and crush them right now. And he considered that's a good possibility. But instead, he said, I'll tell you what. Here's what we're going to do. Get me a helicopter. Got a helicopter pilot, and he and the helicopter pilot flew to the barracks where this meeting, where this treachery was taking place. He landed on the, the roof of the barracks. He told the helicopter pilot, listen, if, if you hear gunshots, take off, flee for your life, save your own life. Because this could go terribly wrong. And the king walked down the steps and into the room where all of the conspirators were making plans to murder him and to overthrow and topple his government, and he walks in on them. A little bit of shock. And he said, listen, I think I hear that you're planning to overthrow my government. You're planning to take me, kill me, and uh, overthrow and, and take over the rule of Jordan. But here's the thing. If you do that, Tens of thousands of people will be displaced and killed. Unbelievable suffering will take place amongst our people for that. So I'll tell you what. Instead of doing that, why don't you just kill me right now? It's better that one person die than the whole country suffer for that. And as soon as he said that, everyone to a man dropped their plans and came and kissed the hand of the king and swore utter and complete allegiance to him. This is the idea behind, I will send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. A 
in Jesus' parable, it doesn't turn out like it did with King Hussein of Jordan. They came up with a two-part plan. First of all, we need to kill him. And second of all, we're going to take his inheritance. Look, here's the son. Let's kill him and let's take the inheritance. Now, some people say, well, how in the world do they think that they could kill the son and take the inheritance? Let me give you two Two possibilities. I think the second one is, is uh, probably the better option. But the first one, people say, that's just an absurd thought. To think that if you kill the, the heir, that somehow now all the property is going to transfer to you. And, and, the, and the reasoning behind that position is simply, yes, sin makes us do utterly and completely illogical things. Yeah, it's illogical. Yeah, it makes no sense. And that's exactly what happens when we reject when we reject the landowner, when we reject the king, we end up doing the most illogical, stupid, and silly things. The other one, I think, is the other option, I think, is much more reasonable, and that is when the sun shows up, they assume that the, that the landowner is dead, and they are going to assert squatter's rights. In other words, once you kill the heir, and there is nobody to make a claim on the land, then the heir is gone, the, they believe the vineyard owner is gone, and dead, and so therefore they will possess all of the vineyard. In other words, we want to own this, these privileges, these blessings, all these blessings, they are ours. They've been treating it as their own, and now we have an opportunity to make sure that it belongs solely to us. So let's kill him and take the inheritance. And they do. You'll notice that Jesus is speaking of events that will happen in the next couple of days. And so there's our parable. The parable is pretty simple. Landowner let out a field. He lent it some, some tenants when the time of harvest came. He sent forth his servants. The servants were rejected and killed, so he sent forth his son. They did not respect him. Instead, they killed him too. So what will the owner do? Jesus tells us he will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. What shall I do? I'm going to judge those tenants. I'm going to destroy them. Their desire to attain the vineyard is going to be taken away from them and it is going to be given to others. They are, he's going to take away the stewardship of God's promises and blessings and give it to others. So now we have to ask ourselves the question, who are the others? God says, I'm going to destroy those those wicked tenants. He's going to remove their privilege of um, overseeing the field. He's going to destroy them, take God's promises and give it to others. And who are these others? Well, narrowly and immediately, it certainly refers to the apostles. In Luke chapter 9 and 10, we, uh, we will see that Jesus sends out the 12 and then he sends out seven, the 70. And they come back saying, even demons are subject to us in your name. We have authority over hell. And then in Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And how does Jesus and Matthew respond to that? He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, what you understand now, you understand not because... You have reasoned it in your own mind, but because God 
has revealed it to you. And so we see these demons who are subjected to the name of God. And when, uh, when that situation or when that account ends, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, many have longed to see what you see and haven't seen it. And many have desired to see the things that you want to see. And in other words, what you guys are doing has been longed for. But the reality has come upon you. You are the inheritors of these things. You are, you are receiving divine information that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus goes on and says, I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And so I believe that what we see is that the, the apostles, the very first believers... The very first leaders of the church are the ones who are given authority and stewardship over the promises and the blessings of God. But I don't think it stops there. I would say that then those who are faithful to the apostolic teaching and who produce fruit to the living God have also been given responsibility and privilege over the promises of God. Folks, I want you to understand we are tenant farmers. And we've been entrusted with God's promises. And so as the pastor, I want you to understand that um, as the pastor of this church, uh, this is not my church. And you as the congregation, this is not your church. This is the church of the living God. Jesus Christ purchased us. It belongs to Him. You and I, if anything, we are stewards of this privilege. That's, that's what we are. He has given it and said, now produce fruit. I don't know that that means it's a huge crowd, but I do believe we need to be responsible for what God has blessed us with. We do not own this church. The elders do not own this church. The congregation does not own this church, and I do not own this church. This was purchased by the blood of Christ. Now, he has given us stewardship here. We are tenant farmers, and we have been entrusted with the promises and, and blessings of God. What are we doing with them? Let me read a few things. Let me read from First Timothy. This is so, I think important for us to understand. First Timothy, Paul charges Timothy with this in chapter 4, verse 16. Paul charges Timothy with this. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What is he charging Timothy with? Watch yourself, watch yourself, and watch your doctrine. Be careful of those two things, Timothy. I am charging you. You're going to be the pastor of this church. You are now to be. You have been given privileges and responsibilities. Now bear fruit. Watch yourself and watch what you teach. Be careful of those things. Be persistent in those things. And by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Folks, need as a church, as a, as a gathered group of people who are privileged with the promises and blessings of God, watch ourselves. Watch how we live amongst one another. And watch what we teach. We have often said 
that you as the church, the church, the members of this church are responsible that the truth is taught. Galatians 1.6 If I or even an angel from heaven teach anything other than what has been taught to you, let him be accursed. And as I've said it over and over again, that's told to the church. The church is to make sure that we are teaching what is correct biblical truth. That means you need to know correct biblical truth. Watch yourselves and watch your doctrine. 1 Timothy 6.20 Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard what's been entrusted to you, Timothy. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Guard what has been entrusted to you. And then in 2 Timothy 1.14 Paul writes this, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Folks, we are to guard what Christ has entrusted to us. Mainly, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the truth that is contained in God's word. We believe that God's word is authoritative. carries authority. We also believe it is sufficient. We do not need revelation from heaven because we have revelation from heaven. It is in God's word. It is authoritative. It guides what we do and it is sufficient. I don't need another testament. I don't need another book. I don't need somebody coming and saying, I had a revelation and a dream from God and this is what you need to do. We have God's revelation. It is sufficient and it is authoritative. What we need to do is to preach it faithfully and completely and and to the best of our ability, guided by the Holy Spirit, and we believe that it is alone is our authority and that it is sufficient. So what is God going to do? What is the landowner going to do? He's going to come and destroy those wicked tenants and give it to another. Folks, we've been entrusted with the promises of God. And the people cry out, surely not. They are appalled. Are you kidding me? They begin to see, my goodness, this is insane. Something Horrible is about to happen. We are about to lose all that we love. And then Jesus responds with this. And he gives them a scriptural rebuke. He says, What then is that this is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That is, the reje- this comes out of Psalm 118. The rejected, the rejected one is the one upon which the whole building is established. In Psalm 118, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So as you're building a building, you need a stone that is perfectly flat so that as you build upon it, the building won't lean. It is perfectly plumb on each side so the building won't be crooked. It needs to be perfect. And you can see the men going through the quarry trying to find a stone. No, that one won't work. No, that one won't work. That one won't work. And they keep rejecting the stones. And Jesus is saying that the stone that the builders rejected has become the very chief cornerstone. Jesus is rejected, he is crucified, and he becomes Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's what's going on. Oh, and by the way, after that it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. Make no mistake that the cross is the Lord's doing. I love it. The stone that the builders rejected has become 
the chief cornerstone. In other words, rejection is not the end of the story, is it? The stone the builders rejected, that's not the end. What's the end? That rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone. Jesus' crucifixion is not the end. His rejection is not the end. What's the end? He's raised in glorious splendor. He ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. For us. Our righteousness, is, is he has made us righteous in him. Our righteousness, is that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And then he goes on and he says this, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Basically, the idea is there's, a, there's a Jewish, an old Jewish saying, and I think I have it here, it says this, if a stone falls on a pot, it will smash the pot. And if a pot falls on a stone, it will smash the pot. In other words, the pot gets crushed either way. Perhaps our best example um, of this, or our best biblical illustration of this, comes from the book of Daniel. Where Daniel is interpreting this dream, and he sees this giant statue. And he talks about the head of gold and the, the feet of bronze and all of this. And then he says this. And in the days of those kings, the, the, gold, the king of gold, the king of bronze, the king of clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in peace all these kingdoms. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar sees. He sees this statue and then he sees this stone come and destroy the statue. And this stone ends up taking over the whole world. Jesus is that kingdom. That kingdom that comes and destroys all earthly kingdoms and ends up being the rule of God forever and ever. Folks, in other words, human sin and human plots do not hinder God's kingdom from proceeding. They are going to seek to destroy Christ and they will put him on the cross and it will not destroy his kingdom. It will not thwart his kingdom. His kingdom has come. His kingdom is coming. My suggestion to you is to become part of that kingdom. This is what we talked about in our Bible study this morning. God adopts us. One of the parts of salvation is that God adopts us and makes us his own. We were rebels who hated God. Hated God. Instead of destroying us, he makes us citizens of his kingdom, brings us into his household, makes us children, his own children, and then makes us heirs of all things. All of that comes because we've been adopted as the children of God. So I hope I've done justice to this particular passage of text. There's a lot here. The bottom line is this. The leaders knew that Jesus was talking about them. I find that interesting. And they didn't repent. They knew that Jesus was saying, your desire is to kill me. And instead of repenting, they went ahead and murdered the Son of God. But it did not thwart the plans of God because the kingdom of Jesus is still Lord of Lords and King of Kings because he rose from the dead. I've got a whole lot to, to talk about, but I'll just end with this.
Folks, we are not the owners of God's blessings. We are not the owners of God's promise. Jesus anticipates that they're going to slay him. But the killing of God's son does not thwart the plan of God. In fact, what's actually going to happen is that the rejected stone, Jesus who is rejected, will be exalted. And you and I are given stewardship of the blessings and the privileges of God and we should bear fruit in that. So I want to remind you, we are not the owners. God is the owner. We are stewards. We are called to produce fruit. Jesus has the authority. We don't. We call upon him. We yield to him. We submit ourselves to him. And we rely upon him. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, you would uh, give us understanding. I feel as though I, I rambled a bit and don't know if I connected all of the parts, Lord God. But your Holy Spirit, Lord God, by your Spirit, impress your truth upon this church, Lord God, that all who are here today, Lord God, would be would see you as high and lifted up, would see you gloriously, would see you, Lord. That's our goal. When we sing, when we pray, when we read your word, Lord God, the goal is that you would be honored and glorified above all things. So I pray, Father, that this day, what is seen, what is heard, what is loved, what is desired, is you and your kingdom, that we would seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. So have mercy on us this day, Lord God, and let us love you with all of our being and love our neighbor as ourselves for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen.